Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 25th, 2022, and this is show number 907. This week's live show is quite an adventure. Steve and I have been doing the live show for a very long time, but most of that time, I actually ran the live show. It was an awful lot of work to set up and control all that while also trying to actually produce a podcast. We used to use Google Hangouts on Air, and while you could see me, Steve, and Discord, my laptop was doing all of the ingesting of video and audio and pushing it out onto the web on top of doing all of the recording for the podcast. And it seemed like that was kind of a dumb way to do it when Steve had this fancy 27-inch iMac that had much more power than my MacBook Pro, but Google Hangouts and Air wouldn't let us push some of this work over to his machine. In April of 2018, we started using the video switching streaming software Mimo Live from Boinks. It's a very complex piece of software, but it's highly capable and configurable. And most importantly, Steve can run the live show from his computer, freeing me up to be the on-air talent. Anyway, that's been great for the last four and a half years, but what happens if Steve decides to go camping and he leaves me alone at home on a Sunday night? Well, we could have bailed on the live show easily enough, but I hate to disappoint, and I love the live show audience. They're so fun. But instead, I'm wearing both hats. I'm doing the producer switcher job, and and I'm doing the on-air talent job. I've got both of our 14-inch M1 MacBooks Pro on our de- on my desk right now. I've got Mimo Live on my Mac. It's ingesting my mics and uh, my mics. Uh, and my audio from my uh, recording software into Mimo Live, and then uh, the video of me and of my recording software, and it's shoving that over our internal network here over to Steve's Mac, which is ingesting it again, and then it's pushing that all out to the uh, live YouTube channel. It's uh, it's quite an effort here, and so Steve's Mac is doing the heavy lifting, but uh, I had to push the buttons. Steve and I ran a couple of test sessions, and I created a 19-page guide using Folga on how to run his Mac, and it appears that as of right now, it's actually working. The first 17 pages was all set up, and we did do the, all of that yesterday, so it was only a matter of actually pushing a couple of buttons, and it does seem to uh, it does seem to be working. I miss him, and uh, hopefully he will be back in just a couple of days. And he's having a blast, so this is kind of fun that I'm able to do this. Dumb. 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 Dumb questions. Dumb questions. Dumb questions. What is? How come I always have to? It's time for Dumb Question Corner. Well, Jill from the Northwoods sent in our dumb question for this week. She asked, My friend has 90,000 photos on her current iPhone and is worried about when her new iPhone comes really soon. How can she migrate her phone over without the hours of backup and restore time and still get her photos back? She does have iCloud and does sync the photos with the space-saving feature turned on. Well, this is a great topic and one that is very near and dear to my heart. Just like Jill's friend, I actually have 90,000 photos as well. 90,922 as of right now, to be exact. The short answer is that Jill's friend has nothing to worry about. The long answer requires me to start with some explanation of how this magic happens. I think it's a valuable thing to talk about because I constantly hear people worrying and trying to manage their photos library when they really don't have to. I'm going to go through some fundamentals first, which will be known to some, but I'm certain not to all of you. You can choose to pay no money to Apple for iCloud storage for your photos and videos. 
While paying no money always sounds like a great starting point, it's important to realize the ramifications of that decision. First of all, you'll have to manually back up your photos. If you don't, and you lose or break your phone, those precious moments you captured of your baby, puppy, or hot fudge sundae are gone forever. Now, backing up isn't hard, and if you're disciplined enough to follow a rigorous schedule to back up your phone, more power to you. But you know what? Most of us don't have the energy or time or personal discipline to do that. Now, I'm not a Windows user, so I can't explain how any of this works on that platform. But on the Mac, you connect the iPhone via a lightning cable, and you'll see it in the left sidebar of any Finder window under Locations. Apple has a dandy support article in which they explain that you can then use the Photos tab in the resulting Finder window to sync photos from your device to your Mac. The second problem you'll have to deal with is manual management of your photos on your phone. If you aren't paying for iCloud storage, I'm guessing you don't want to pay for streaming music services either, so you need space on your phone for your music as well as images and videos and games and everything else. Now, the photos themselves aren't that big, running around 2 megabytes apiece, but those videos add up really quickly. For example, I took a 6-second video today, and it was 42 megabytes. The task at hand becomes figuring out how to remove photos and videos from your phone. All Macs come with a built-in utility called Image Capture. You can find it inside your Applications folder, in another folder in there called Utilities. With your phone connected to your Mac, opening Image Capture will show you all of your photos and videos that are on your phone. In Apple's dandy support article about this, they explain that by default, any items you import locally will, by default, remain on your phone. In the Image Capture toolbar, you can select Delete After Import instead. That way you can keep your phone clean and tidy. But now you have to decide which photos to keep on your phone. Do you want to delete everything, maybe once a month and start fresh? Or do you want to keep the photos of your baby golden retriever so you can show it off, her off to your friends when they try to force photos of their grandchildren on you? It's starting to sound like a lot of work, isn't it? Well, I swear I'm not paid by Apple to sell you on iCloud Plus, but I am a true believer. Even if you don't take advantage of some of the privacy features you gain with iCloud Plus, just the advantages of having Apple manage my photos for me is worth every penny. Beyond the storage, you get the ability to hide your email from websites where you register, you can have a custom email domain, and you can even store HomeKit secure video, and those videos do not come out of your iCloud, your iCloud Plus storage allowance. You can share all of these features and the storage with up to five other family members. Now, pricing for iCloud Plus varies by country, but in the United States, the pricing is 50 gigabytes for a dollar a month, 200 gigabytes for $3 a month, and two terabytes for $9.99. Now, Jill's friend and I are on the crazy pants end of things with our giant photos libraries, so we need to pay the $10 a month for two terabytes of iCloud Plus. But you know what? Most of the people I talk to kind of fit within that 200 gigabytes of storage. Now, remember that this storage allotment is also used to back up your iPhone and your iPad as well, if you have those too. With iCloud Plus, you now have the option to turn on iCloud Photo Library, and Jill's friend has already done this. With it enabled across all of your devices, you can now see all of your photos on your iPhone, Mac, and iPad. You don't have to pick and choose which ones live where, they all live everywhere. Now, if you delete a photo you took of your ingrown toenail for your doctor, you can delete it and it disappears everywhere and you're not in danger of it showing up in a slideshow on your Apple TV. If you make a crop and adjust the lighting to get just the right feel to your photo of your hot fudge sundae, all of your devices will get this improved image. So far, that's pretty great. 
But there's another reason to use iCloud Photo Library. On your smaller storage devices, like an iPhone, you can tell iCloud Photo Library to optimize storage. To quote Apple's dandy support article about this feature, they say, With optimized storage, smaller, space-saving photos and videos are kept on your device while all of your original, full-resolution versions are stored in iCloud. And as long as you have enough space in iCloud, you can store as many photos and videos as you want. Okay, do you hear that? Now, they're really not kidding about this. And this is where it's going to get back to Jill's friend's actual question. My 90,000 photos and video uh, videos take up 984 gigabytes on my Mac in full resolution. But my iPhone's only 256 gigabytes. On the iPhone, my photos library only takes up 20.72 gigabytes. So 90,000 photos, 21 gigabytes. This means I could bring up scanned-in photos of my mom and dad's wedding in the 1940s or pictures of Lindsay and Kyla's babies or photos I took of Tesla this very week, and they're all there all the time. With broadband internet, I never know which ones are downloaded on the fly and which ones were already there in full resolution. I imagine if you have low bandwidth, it would be noticeable, so that might be a reason to go down a different path. I do recommend that on one computer, you do choose to download originals and not use optimized storage everywhere, because that way you can back that computer up to an external drive and maybe even do offsite backups as well of that computer, and you have your full resolution photos stored elsewhere. I do trust Apple up to a point to keep my photos safe, but I will always keep full backups of my own just in case. Okay, now what was her question? Oh, right, right. Jill's friend is getting a new iPhone and she's worried about hours of backup and restore time. Well, you know what? Her friend has nothing to worry about. I can speak from experience on this, having just transferred all of my data from my older phone, including my 90,000 image photo library, to my new iPhone 14 Pro, and I did not wait hours. In the old days, I used to sync my phone to my Mac and then restore all of that data back to the new phone using a cable to my Mac. It seemed to me that would have to be faster than downloading from iCloud, but for some reason, it takes far longer. I heard John Syracuse on the Accidental Tech Podcast telling a story of this week of how he did it the old school restore from the Mac method this year, and the world of hurt having to sign back into everything and tailor things back to the way they were sounded a lot like me describing my nuke and pave process. He had to do a ton of work, and in the end, he erased it all and did it over again the way I do it now. Now, let me take an intermediate step, though. In the most recent past, I've used the Restore from iCloud backup path. And of course, I followed Dan Apple's Dandy support article on that process, and it worked really well. And like I said, it was significantly faster than the cable method to a Mac from a backup. And that might be what Jill's friend is remembering, is the old path of having it back up to your Mac and then pulling it all off your Mac, and that took forever. But a few years back, when I turned on a new phone, it offered a new option. So this is a third option. The option I favor now is referred to as Quick Start by Apple, but you might also see it called Transfer Directly from iPhone. You get a cool swirly looking thing on the new phone, you point your old phone's camera at the swirly thing, and two phones make the, the, two phones make the transfer happen magically. Now, I heard Casey Liss on the Accidental Tech Podcast say that both phones will be tied up for anywhere from one to three hours. I don't know what was going on with his phone, but that is not at all true for, for me. That's not what happened for me. It might have taken maybe a half hour at most, 
And after that, the new phone was usable while it continued to download applications from the internet. So that transfer of data goes between the two phones, but you do still uh, download your applications from the internet after that. Now, I didn't look at my, my photos library during this part of the process, but I know that as soon as I needed to see any photo, it was already there. And you know I ran around taking pictures the minute I got that new camera. Before you start this process, I highly suggest you ensure that iCloud backups are running on the old phone and that you run one final backup before you start. On the old phone, open Settings, tap on your name at the top, select iCloud, and then under Device Backups, make sure that iCloud Backup is turned on. It's usually turned on by default. The day you're going to transfer your data, it's not a bad idea to kind of tap Backup now so you're certain to have a fresh backup. Then simply turn on the new phone and follow the instructions. Even though I have 90,000 photos on my phone, the process of moving from my previous phone to my new one was absolutely painless. Again, to Jill's friend, you don't need to worry about this. Now, the last thing I want to mention it very much in this contact, uh, context is that you may not need as much storage on future phones as you think you do. If you open your current phone to Settings, General, iPhone Storage, you can see how much of your total storage you're using. I take all of my videos in 4K HDR, and we've mentioned quite a few times how big my photos library is, and yet I'm only using 108 gigabytes of the 256 gigabytes available on my iPhone. Now, I have a theory. I have no evidence to prove this is true, but I bet that if I had a 512 gigabyte iPhone, I'd be using a lot more storage. I'm guessing Apple would take advantage of that breathing room and stretch out a bit and keep a few more things locally. I also wonder whether maybe I could get away with a 128 gigabyte iPhone and Apple would squeeze my 90,000 photos into those skinny jeans and maybe I would have never known the difference. Now, I keep thinking that these enhanced photographic capabilities will make me need more storage, but because of this magic that is iCloud Photo Library, I still fit quite nicely in the 256 gigabyte model. I want to thank Jill and her friend for this awesome, dumb question, and I hope the details behind all of this help some of you make good decisions on how you manage your photos libraries. Wait, this just in. In the live chat room, Jason showed a screenshot of how many photos he has and uh, how much storage he's taking on his iPhone Pro Max. And he's got half as many photos as I do. He's got 43,000 photos. And guess what? It's taking up 500 gigabytes on his phone. So I think my theory might have something, um, something valid to go in there. So he's bought a, a one terabyte phone and it's using more than, oh, I'm bad at math or arithmetic there, but whatever, 20 times 500 divided by two, whatever, it's using up an awful lot more storage than it probably needs to. So that's, that's really interesting. The bigger your phone, the more phone you need. So anyway, glad to have that theory validated. All right, let's switch gears here. And we're going to hear from Ryan Winkler, also known as Dopey One in the live chat room and in our Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack. Let's start with our problem to be solved. I find myself wanting or needing to use discs of different types, CDs, DVDs, or Blu-rays, on my M1 Mac Mini. This isn't an issue, as I have a few USB DVD drives and even two USB Blu-ray drives. The issue that I have found is that the slimline DVD or Blu-ray drives, even the one that I have that is made by Apple, are okay at reading discs, but not great. 
I'm not sure why this is the case, but many of the newer Blu-ray drives that I have do not even read CDs very well. For example, I have been working with some CDs recently that have been used over the years, so they're not perfect. They have scratches or blemishes on them. I cannot blame the CDs. It's not the CD's fault that they've been used and now have some blemishes. I too am a few years older and have more blemishes than I once did. Using these blemish discs in the USB slim laptop style drives that I have has been interesting to say the least. The drives try to read the discs, but sometimes skip or even the drives may give up altogether on trying to even read the discs, sometimes causing the application that I'm using or even the computer to stop being responsive. I think that this requires more testing. As I've stated, the blemish discs just do not read well in the slimline laptop style USB DVD or newer Blu-ray drives that I have. I do have some older external full-size DVD and Blu-ray drives. I actually have four or five of them, and using one or two of them to conduct some testing, I found that these older full-size drives actually read many of the blemish discs without any issue at all, which is much better than the newer drives that I have. Now looking at each of these old drives, they obviously have a data cable, so each drive would or could be connected to the M1 Mac Mini if I want to use USB, and that was fine for my testing, but the drives have the following connections. The Blu-ray drive that I would like to use has USB 3 and FireWire 800. DVD 1 drive is USB 2 and FireWire, and DVD 2 is FireWire only. Did you notice the common interface that all of these older devices have? Have any of you used USB CD or DVD drives and then used them plugged into a FireWire or FireWire 800 port? I guess what I should be asking is how many of you even remember FireWire, FireWire 800, or even remember using it? Well, I do. I have to admit that I did lots of testing and comparing external devices using USB and FireWire as well as FireWire 800. As you may or may not recall, FireWire devices used to cost more than USB devices back in the day. Do any of you know why that was? Well, part of the extra cost was due to the FireWire chipset that was used in the device. Unlike USB devices that would use your system CPU in your computer for processing the data, FireWire devices used minimal computer CPU because they had some processing capability built into the FireWire chipset. The other neat thing about FireWire was its ability to daisy-chain FireWire devices. Now, this didn't work well for those of you who used FireWire on Windows computers, but it worked very well on Mac computers. At one time, I had four external hard drives and three external DVD drives all plugged into my old Mac Mini using one FireWire 800 cable connection. It worked flawlessly for me for years, and it was quite fast. It actually tested faster for me than when I plugged in the USB 3 drive when I was copying large files. The FireWire connection was also bi-directional, meaning that I could both read and write files from different devices on the FireWire chain without noticing much speed loss. Anyway, I digress. That's enough about how I really liked FireWire and FireWire 800 devices. It was very sad to see them go. But with the M1 Mac Mini now, we only have two USB 3.1 Gen 2 ports and two Thunderbolt USB 4 ports. Thunderbolt is fast and, like FireWire, can sometimes support daisy-chaining devices. On my M1 Mac Mini, currently, I have one of my displays plugged into, let's call it Thunderbolt USB 4 port 1, and my OWC Mercury Elite Pro Dual with 3-port hub plugged into, let's call it, port 2. 
you can listen to my review of the OWC Mercury Elite with 3-Port Hub on Nasilacast episode number 837 or read the blog post dated May 18, 2021, should you be interested. I continue to use and enjoy the external drive cage. So part of the problem to be solved is that I would like to use my old external DVD and Blu-ray drives as well as the old Firewire-only DVD drive that I have. The easiest way to do this would be to plug in these devices just like I did in the past, using a Firewire chain connection so that all the drives could be plugged in using just one port on my M1 Mac Mini. How can this be done? How about we look for an adapter? The M1 Mac Mini does have two Thunderbolt USB 4 ports that could be used if we found the correct adapter. I would like to have said that I found the perfect adapter so that I could have plugged into the Thunderbolt port on the M1 Mac Mini and then plugged into the FireWire 800 port on my Blu-ray drive, but that just was not the case. Apple makes a Thunderbolt to FireWire 800 adapter, but it uses the old Thunderbolt 2 Mini Display port looking plug. Doing some more looking, Apple makes a Thunderbolt 3 USB-C style to Thunderbolt 2 mini DisplayPort looking plug. I ended up purchasing both of these adapters, plugging the Thunderbolt FireWire adapter into the Thunderbolt 3 USB-C to Thunderbolt 2 adapter. So I plugged in the USB-C Thunderbolt 3 end of the dual adapters to the M1 Mac Mini, then I plugged in the FireWire 800 cable from my old Blu-ray drive into the other end of the dual adapters. Now for those who have been paying close attention, have you discovered the new problem that needs to be solved? The M1 Mac Mini only has the two Thunderbolt USB 4 ports, but I already have my monitor which can only terminate a Thunderbolt chain, and the external drive cage plugged into the second Thunderbolt port. I would like to say that I had the money to buy a fancy new monitor like the Samsung TU87F, which supports Thunderbolt pass-through, but I just couldn't justify the $630 plus monitor. What I decided to try was a less expensive Thunderbolt hub. I found three to look at. The CalDigit Thunderbolt 4 Element Hub, selling for $249.99. The pluggable Thunderbolt 4 Hub, selling for $179.00 and the OWC Thunderbolt Hub for $169. The CalDigit has four Thunderbolt ports, a connection to the computer port, and four USB-A 3.2 Gen 2 ports. But it's $80.99 more than the cheapest option. The pluggable device has three Thunderbolt ports and a connection to the computer port. The OWC has three Thunderbolt ports, the connection to the computer port, as well as a single USB-A 3.2 Gen 2 port. So the question is, which one of these hubs should I choose? Well, the Apple adapters that I already purchased were not inconsequential. The Thunderbolt to FireWire adapter was $29, and the Thunderbolt 3 to Thunderbolt 2 adapter was $49. So I have already invested $78 into this project. Taking that into account, I decided to go ahead and just select the OWC Thunderbolt Hub mainly because it was the cheapest, and if I'm honest, I've had excellent luck and great service from OWC in the past. Unboxing the OWC Hub, when you open the box, you see the hub device cradled inside a black colored cardboard, placing the hub in the middle of the box with two finger openings so that the hub can easily be lifted out of the box. The hub comes inside a size-fitting plastic bag without any tape or sticky stuff to get in the way. Yes, I like it when it comes like that. 
I hate having to use a knife or something to cut tape, or even worse, peel the tape off to only have sticky residue left on the bag. Lifting the black cardboard out of the box reveals a quick start leaflet, power adapter with standard computer power cord, a NEMA 6-15P to C13, as I'm located in the United States, and a Thunderbolt 4 cable, approximately 3 feet long. Just like I did in the dongle testing, I unplugged my second monitor from the back of my M1 Mac Mini, freeing up one of the Thunderbolt ports, and used the now open port for the included Thunderbolt 4 cable to plug into the Thunderbolt Hub computer connection port. I then plugged my second monitor into, let's call it port 1 on the OWC Thunderbolt Hub, and the monitor worked immediately. I then picked up the Apple double dongle for my Firewire connection and plugged it into the OWC Hub. I powered on the external Blu-ray and DVD drives, and they all worked without issue. I'm happy to report that everything worked as I was hoping that it would, and I even have one available empty Thunderbolt port on the OWC hub should I want or need to plug something else in using Thunderbolt. Well, all's well that ends well, or that's what someone once said. But I do think it's interesting that we now live in a dongle, or in my case, multi-dongle world. And last of all, I would like to encourage you all to stay subscribed. Well, thank you so much for this, Ryan. This was really, really interesting. Now, when Ryan first sent this, he was kind of saying, oh, you know, you've kind of talked about doing this kind of dongle dance before when you worked on the uh, the old TiVo that you had and had to do the same kind of thing. So maybe that's repetitive and maybe people don't care about this kind of thing. But these very exact kind of questions have been asked in the last week by a couple of different people to me. So uh, even if you don't need to do this right now, the story is certainly very entertaining. And if you get a chance to look the blog post that he wrote. I highly recommend it because it's filled with images. Uh, he's got pictures of the o OWC uh, hub, and uh, and he's got a fantastic diagram at the end of the Frankenstein he created. It's just fabulous. I think it's really fun. So thanks again, Ryan, for doing this. This was really, really great. There's a podcast I really like. It's around 14 minutes long. It starts with a two-minute pre-roll ad, and then they run a second ad in the middle of the episode. Now, the content's fantastic, but 28% of the show's length is ads. I'm proud that the NoSilicast doesn't run ads, and I don't interrupt you for more than 30, 45 seconds in a one-hour show, or maybe even a longer show. If you like that my shows are ad-free too, please go to podfeet.com slash Patreon and choose an amount that shows the value you get from the work we do here at the Podfeet Podcast. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for an out-of-band security bits with Bart Bouchotts to try to get us back in band. Is that right, Bart? Not quite. We're still... It's two weeks since the last one, so we're we're still in our new band. It's just out of sync with Programming by Stealth's band. <laughs> All right, I've lost track of what we're doing, so I'll just, I'll just show up when you say you can record, so that works for me. And there's some stories I really wanted to hear about this week. Oh, goody. Um, it's kind of, yeah, it's two weeks worth of news, but it's in a strange shape because the main stories has like one story in it that I sort of put there because I felt I couldn't have the section be empty, but even that's probably <laughs> not the best place for it. Um, so it, lots of fun stuff, but not in the normal places. Um, I guess the first thing is some follow-ups. We mentioned some time ago that Google had described a plan they were fixing to make to allow political campaigns 
to have their email not treated as spam. Oh, but it yeah, will yeah, still, yeah. It will still be virus checked, which is good, or malware checked. So the idea is that if it's political, to avoid being accused of having a liberal bias, they'll let it all through, but it will have to be registered and it will come with a little banner where the user gets to say, I don't want this campaign to be able to reach me again. And so it's not spam okay. filtering, it's an opt out from a specific political campaign. Yeah, here's good. I guess that's the best compromise you can come up with. But here's here's the mis, the the problem with this. I made the uh, error of using my email address to send uh, money to someone uh -oh. in a specific campaign. Except the way you get registered when you do that is you are now your email address is available to everyone of that political party. So I can block. Congressperson, Congress critter A, but Congress critter B's emails come to me, and so do C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, all of them. They all keep coming. I can't make them stop. Because you once I was on that list, or. I'm... <laughs> well, I mean, technically, I signed up at that website. Yeah, but did it make it clear that you were signing up to receive email from every single politician from the same party in the entire country? Because if it didn't, it would breach GDPR. Yeah, I I mean, whether it made it, it was clear and Allison didn't pay attention, you know, who will ever know? And it doesn't stop them from texting me, which I definitely never told them they could do me. Yeah. Oof. And they all, yeah, so, right now they all oof. start with, it's the end of the world. It is the end of the world, Bart. All of them start with that. <laughs> well, thanks, Allison. I now have an earworm in my head. <laughs> Not a bad song, though, so I guess that's okay. Um, yeah, now this is a, so they've gotten SEC approval for a pilot scheme to be run during this, the upcoming midterm elections. So a small number of campaigns from each party will be signed up to this and Google and the SEC will be watching. And depending on how it goes, it will either become the new normal or it won't. So that sounds like an see. awfully civilized way to do it. All the parties working together. <laughs> All the parties Separately working Except with you. Google. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, the, and the customers aren't involved. But other than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, SEC approval was delayed because there was such a large amount of public feedback, which was overwhelmingly oh. negative. Okay. Okay. So, anyway, oh. we shall see. I'm, I'm, I'll be curious. Um, we also talked recently-ish about how if you have your own embedded browser, you can use it to spy on people in ways you can't do if you just send people out to the normal browser in you know right. on iOS or whatever. And we said that uh, a security researcher had demonstrated that not only could hypothetically you abuse such things, Meta were in fact abusing such things and injecting JavaScript for tracking keystrokes. That has now become a class action federal lawsuit filed in San Diego. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. There's gambling going on here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we shall see how it develops. Mm. Uh, which then brings us on to the first of two deep dives. Um, uh, they're, they're somewhat shallow, but they're, they're fun anyway. So the first of them has a fire extinguisher next to it, because this is one of those stories that the security researchers who published it were very, very keen to make this a giant big news story. And all of the reputable security news sites were very, very keen not to let them get away with that because it's oh. kind of a nothing burger, but they managed to dress it up in such a way that some lesser sites did run with it because they, they managed to say without lying that 
they could bypass multi-factor authentication on Microsoft Teams. Sort of Okay. Okay. So, what they have discovered is that Microsoft Teams, like every other Electron app, uses cookies to store its authentication tokens. And if you have already hacked the computer, then you can read those cookies and then reuse that authentication token from elsewhere, and the server may or may not let you away with it. That's what they're And they're saying that's... How does that make the uh, authentication token weaker? Just because you didn't need it when you did it someplace else? Well, it's... Okay, so it means... It means that they can become you briefly, possibly, by stealing your authentication token. So it's a bit like going through security at some sort of fair, you know, some sort of Disney World like place and getting given the armband, and then someone steals your armband, and then they can go on the rides as you for a while. Okay, so that does sound like a bad thing. It does. However, in order to steal the armband from you, they have to already be in your computer. So if the attackers have already hacked you, then... Oh, wait. I have a much bigger problem. I've already been hacked. Okay. The fact that they can get into my teams as well as everything on my computer and they can watch everything I do and they can control every app I'm using and they can do anything they want already... This is like... So you're in my house and the fact that you can also... You can some look other out stuff. the window, or it, you can look at my sock drawer. Yeah, it's like you have a much bigger problem. You've already been hacked. Uh, but there's actually some so more interesting stuff to talk about sort of like a website, though, since Electron is a web app? It's exactly like a website. And uh, in fact, stealing okay. cookies from browsers is uh, session jacking, and it's been around for decades. Okay. And this exact same thing can be done to Slack. This exact same thing can be done to Discord. Because which it's is all why. Electron apps. Because they're web apps. Yeah, exactly. And okay. the internet in general. You can just go into the cookie file that belongs to Firefox and pinch all the cookies you like. If you're because already you've inside. hacked the computer. Okay. So you're in the okay. cookie you're 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 in the kitchen, so yes, you can reach the cookie jar. Um, which is why the only mention, because uh, the the news story had the words Teams and multi-factor authentication in it. Um, no. And uh, lots of people asked me about it, even like even my darling beloved at home was like, what's the story with this Teams hack? And so I just kept on reading like Naked Security and all of the good security websites and no one was talking about the story. And eventually uh, the Sans Internet Storm Center podcast mentioned it to say that they wouldn't be mentioning it because there's nothing to talk about. <laughs> okay. Like, okay. I, my initial assumption that this is a nothing burger has just been proven because if the Sans Internet Storm Center say there's no storm, then it's fine. <laughs> it's her job. But you said but it is a interesting. perspective that's interesting? Yes. So I think it's probably an opportunity to talk about how website authentication actually works. Because every time you log into a website, the result of that logging in is you, you are forced to prove in some way that you are who you say you are. And the level of proof needed depends on the website in question and the configuration of that website. So you could be made to jump through the greatest, biggest possible hoops by having multi-factor authentication and biometric scans and all sorts of stuff. Or it could just be type in this four-digit PIN. It doesn't really matter how. At the end of the day, once you have proved yourself, the website will give you a an ephemeral 
a token that represents that successful authentication. And that token will have a defined scope and a defined life. And anyone bearing that token is you. And so that's kind of why it's important that they be ephemeral. But that's also why the settings of different websites make such a difference. Because if you configure... So in the case of Office 365, if you configure your Office 365, you actually get to decide how long tokens are trusted for and stuff like that. So it actually does make a big difference. And it is true to... The sysadmin, you mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The people controlling your... Unless it's a small company and you're you have both hats on, okay. But in normal world, in a normal world, yeah, it would be your your IT department will be configuring your Office three six five tenancy to make it behave. But the interesting thing is that that token has to be given to the server every time you do something on the server. So even if that token is stolen, the server doesn't have to keep believing it. So, right. So one of the things that Office 365 does is it's actually, it uses a lot of AI to watch those tokens and look for something unusual. And if you read your security logs in a well-configured Office 365 tenancy, what you will see is that whenever Office 365 gets suspicious, it just just throws away the token and says, no, prove it to me again. Do two-factor auth again. what What would make it get suspicious? But one of its favorite ones I see in the logs a lot is impossible travel. In other words, this token appeared on IP address in Ireland and then 10 seconds later on IP address in China. There is no teleporter. So therefore, VPN could cause that. Yes, VPNs can give a false positive, but it is suspicious. Sure, but then you just log in again. And you're exactly you're told, right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So that's so you will see impossible so, travel. I like that. It's wonderful. I love seeing. Oh, I love is probably the wrong word, but it's one you see in the logs a lot, and it always sounds out at me because it's cool. So <laughs> even if the bad guys steal your token, if you're using a good service and that service is applying the latest security technologies, once the bad guys try to actually use the token, so maybe the signal is as simple as the token was issued on a Mac, and now the token's being used on a Linux machine, and there's been a change of IP address. Well, that's not right. Right. Because when you <laughs> log into your Mac, OS transfer. <laughs> right, exactly. So when you log into your Mac, you get one token, and when you log into your Linux machine, you get another token. So even if you use both Linux and Mac, one token should never appear on both. Something really weird has happened if a token switches operating system. Okay, and it checks that too, huh? Yeah, exactly. So it's constantly a good system like Office 365. Is constantly it does a real time risk analysis every single time it meets a token. And depending on how you configure your tenancy, you can tolerate more or less risk. And so if you tolerate more risk because you have lots of VPN users or whatever, it might be a bit slower to throw away the token, but it will just throw away the token. And even if you have the dumbest site, the tokens always have an expiration date. So the worst case is that someone has temporary access to your stuff. So the more you think about these things, the less of an actual issue it is. But it made a lot of shouty headlines. Right, right. So would you say that what Microsoft is doing with this, with their tokens, this is unique uh, magic that they do and they're brilliant or lots of services probably do this? I would say every major provider is doing this. So there is, I know for a fact, Google also have all sorts of AI watching all of this kind of stuff. And I would imagine anyone at that scale is doing the same thing. Okay. 
And it's kind of why really you... interesting. Yeah, it's sort of why you like to outsource your roles to other people sometimes, because they can do things you can't. Right, and you don't have to invent that magic yourself. Yeah, exactly. Piggyback off these things is, is a very powerful thing to do. Can I tell you how I was, uh, I tortured a, a bank on Twitter uh, this week? Oh, fun. Always authentication. fun. So uh, I logged into one of my banks, one of my financial institutions, let me call it that, and uh, it was still SMS. So I was in a mood and I <laughs> tweeted, seriously, at company name, why do you still only have SMS two for two-factor authentication? You know it's insecure, insecure as all get out, right? Give us an authenticator app option already. They responded yeah. quite quickly. They said, we offer two-factor authentication through either your phone or the Semantic VIP Access app. <laughs> Not installing an app. We leave it up to you to decide which to use. You can learn more about our extra login security choices here. Let us know if you have questions. <laughs> I do have a question. <laughs> when are you going to drop insecure SMS via our phones? There's no way I'm signing up for some semantic software when industry standard 2FA codes were rolled out in 2011. And they wrote back, thanks for reaching out. We make use of various industry standard protection measures to secure your information and regularly adapt these controls to respond to changing requirements and advances in technology. We will relay your feedback to the appropriate team. I was not finished. My final response. Well, actually, you don't. This article from 2017 walks through the NIST recommendations to banks in which they say not to use SMS because it's insecure. That's five years ago. Please use industry standard protection measures. Seriously, you have one job to protect our money. And of course, the link was to, oh, shoot, did I forget the link? Dagnam, but I did. Oh, well, uh, the link was going to be to my article about NIST explaining to banks that they should not use, uh, they should not use SMS. Yeah. I enjoyed and myself. Good. Um, I actually like the fact that you went through NIST in fine detail because... Um, the Irish government released a set of standards for um, Irish public sector institutions. And what they did was they took the NIST guidelines, they did a find all for America and did a replace with Ireland. So we are basically running off. They did a find and replace for America and Ireland. In, in, in what again? The NIST guidelines have become the official guidelines for oh. Irish public sector bodies. Oh, wow. Oh, good. Because they're good. Right? They are good. I mean, you know, they tweaked a few things here or there, but I call it NIST with an Irish accent because it's pretty much indistinguishable from NIST. If you do a, uh, a search on podfeed.com for NIST, you can find my article from 2017. It's, uh, it was one of my better nerd, uh, nerd I love the f- I love that you did that. Again, it was a different financial institution that sent you off on that one, if memory serves. Yeah. Actually, who knows? It might have been the same one. Yeah, but yeah, my other ones are doing are doing pretty good. We're 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 coming along. Oh yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I did I did leave that uh, financial institution and went to one that had uh, had better uh, two factor. Excellent. Okay, so our second deep dive is a look at two recent high 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 profile hacks. And if I may spoil the ending a bit, the end result is I have more faith in both companies as a result. Really? Okay. Really, especially because one of them's Uber. And I was I was kind of hoping to get to be really snarky, but I kind of <laughs> can't. They suck the fun out of it? Oh, no. They kinda, yeah, they kind of did. Uh, but I think we should start in chronological order. So the, the last time we were speaking, we had just had the LastPass hack, and we didn't have a huge amount of detail, but we were pretty sure 
that user should be absolutely fine because of the architecture of the whole system with end-to-end encryption, meaning that the only thing LastPass server store is encrypted vaults. So the attackers, even if they got everything, don't get into people's vaults. So that is true. Uh, We were not wrong Mm. in that. But actually, we have since learned because uh, they have released a more detailed incident report we have actually learned that they have a they have a fantastic architecture in place. They're yeah, they've just basically designed their systems right. Um, yeah, I never I never doubted them. To me, I looked yeah. at well, what would they do? Of course, yeah. they 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 have one job. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So they we now know based on this incident report that they have a dev environment that is physically separated from their production environment and no production data is ever imported into the dev environment and that is By that physically is a, separated you don't mean an isolated network do you? I do I do really? I mean they have physically oh, separated wow. the two yeah which is going above okay. and beyond right that is not yeah. That is more than I would have expected. I was really impressed. They have all sorts of controls on how source code gets from development into production to detect all sorts of issues. And the the not using production data in test environments is so important. A lot of, right, if you think about it, what is the easiest way to get realistic data into my test system to make sure my system works with real customer data? I know I'll take my real customer data and throw it into a system full of experimental code where the bugs haven't been beaten out of yet. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and I mean, a lot uh, of people have access to it during development, yeah, exactly. probably. Yeah, dev systems are inherently less secure than production systems because the whole point of a dev system is it's a building site. It's a place where people are. And where there's people, there's risk because <laughs> the squishy organic bit, that's the other thing these two hacks have in common. The way in was not technological. It was through squishy organic bits. And... They, you know, humans were kind of important. We're going to exist. So your dev environment is inherently less secure than your production environment. So testing with real data is a disastrously bad idea. And so the great they don't thing- test with real data. They isolate the network and everything is always encrypted in a way they can never get to it anyway. Precisely. So basically they tick all the boxes wonderfully. They don't just tick them. They like tick them in like such... Hard. They nearly went through the paper ticking them. With anger. Them. Yeah, absolutely. If you would like to read more, the um, link in the show notes is to a Naked Security article that goes through in more detail what we know and also puts, the, in that wonderful Naked Security way, explains why these things matter. For And it's so, you know, Naked Security write their articles for human beings, not for nerds. And I love it about them. So it's, it's well worth a read if you're curious how corporations who do things well do things in 2022. Nice. Uh, Uber hack then, I don't think it had even happened when we recorded last, has it? I think it happened like no, the day or two I, after. I sent you a note saying, please, can we talk about this soon? Because I was concerned about the Uber hack. Yeah, I mean, and particularly because it made a lot of noise. Now, we now know that it was the Lapsus group who are, we're pretty sure are a bunch of boastful teenagers in the UK. And... Their aim is not to make money. So their aim is not to be quiet. Their aim is to basically big themselves up. And so... The kid in The Simpsons going, ha ha. Yeah. And so they were putting out... as They were maximizing the appearance of what they had to make Uber look as hacked as possible. 
And when you put out a screenshot and then you don't give it context, but let people extrapolate in their minds to the most catastrophic outcome, you can very quickly make it seem as if your hack is worse than it really is. So an example of one of the things they showed was that they were inside the Azure instance for Uber. Which isn't, they weren't really, they weren't in the actual production infrastructure. Okay. Because... Just like our friends at LastPass, Uber have completely... Now, they don't have physically segregated, uh, but they do actually have completely separate dev and production environments, and they also have a very strict rule against production data never going into the dev environment. So again, they got in through a developer, um, in this case, by hacking the squishy organic bit using a barrage of 2FA. So if you keep hammering someone by sending them auth request after auth request after auth request, in sheer frustration, a human being could very well respond by just clicking, oh, fine, then, okay. As opposed to uninstalling the Authenticator app until Monday. Uh, (laughs) But that is how they got in. And once they were in, they were in as a developer. And so they were able to read the source code. Uh, but again, there were there are controls in place on source code moving from product from development into production. So no, they didn't even try to change it. But if they had, that would have been stopped on the way through anyway. They also got to post some stuff on Slack. And I would imagine scared the bejesus out of the employees. Um, mm-hmm. And they also got access because, because they again, broke into their Slack account, you mean? Well, into no, admin credentials on their slacks and the internal oh, okay. slack the internal slack used oh, okay, by the developers right, right. so okay. the the people who get freaked out would have been the uber employees because suddenly okay. they were bad guys effectively in the digital version of the coffee room <laughs> we should right? call them bad people by the way we don't know that they were guys well, to me guy is an ungendered term but no it is not no it is not <laughs> it is certainly used if, that way by many people but anyway that's not a security yeah, discussion but it isn't Right, but uh, I, I just want to make sure they could have been bad women. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, to imply that all bad people are men. Unfortunately, if the reports of the arrest in the UK that are almost certainly but not definitely related, I'm afraid to say it's teenage boys. Okay, uh, and that's fine. But when we speak generically, I'd like to try to say uh, bad people, because if I'm going to say that doctors can be women, I got to say that bad guys can be women. So bad people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do kind of have to be, yeah, yeah. When you when you allow every good thing to be ungendered, I'm afraid to say all the evil stuff should be ungendered too. Unfortunately, yeah. I think statistically speaking, there's a better argument for the former than the latter. Well, yeah, but I'm allowed to say that because I'm a bloke. <laughs> yeah, but you know, mass murders are mostly done by men. But yep, and hacky t- cyber crime, I'm afraid, is the same. It's right. That's a just because there aren't enough women represented in the in the STEM fields, though, Bart. <laughs> or do they have more morals? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's don't a know. subject for a different podcast. Oh, yes. Uh, someone with a doctorate in some sort of uh, social science, I think. Right, um, right. So, okay, so they barraged this... this con- oh, it was a contractor, your notes say, that they, yes. they barraged with MFA notifications. Not that that makes them less... No, because a, l- a lot of IT is outsourced, right? If you go into any IT organization. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they're all human, right? So, right. yeah, the line between works here and works for here is very blurry. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but again, uh, actually, sorry, the one thing I did also mention, because it was a developer network they got into, they did also get into the portal controlling the bug bounty program for Uber, uh, which had the potential to be a bit more problematic, but every bug they accessed was a bug that was already patched, so they either got very unlucky or there are currently no clangers of bugs outstanding. Maybe they accessed everything, but there's no there's no big problems in there. But so, it was important. So they weren't able to get into uh, people's records for the bug bounty program that showed how they were paid or anything like that? Well, no, because it works through a third-party broker, so it's all kind of the... They use a third-party service so that the people can anonymously report bugs and get paid. Oh, okay. 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 It's a feature. Um, so this is a good news story. It kind of is. And then the other thing in the incident report is how they responded. And they basically reset all of their keys. They reset all of the relevant passwords. They were able to very quickly figure out exactly through their, they had appropriate levels of monitoring to be able to forensically say, well, they opened this file, they opened this file, they've been here, they've been there, they haven't been here, they haven't been there. Um, so because they had a good audit trail, once they knew which accounts were hacked, then you just go to the audit log and say, well, what did that account do? Oh, this, 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 and this. Okay, fine, we can lock that down. And they never got out of the dev environment, so there was never any production data in any danger whatsoever. So again, good design. So yeah. all of this is is basically part of the modern design principles of IT security. It's It goes, the whole umbrella concept goes under the very misleading term of zero trust, because zero trust doesn't mean don't trust anything, but it means trust has to be earned. So it's sort of like zero unearned trust is kind of a better way to think of zero trust. Uh, but one of the zero trust principles is assume breach. So you build your systems, not with the old fashioned approach of having an edge firewall and then everything inside the firewall was free for all, um, sort of the medieval model of security. You assume a breach and therefore you build defenses everywhere because you just assume that they're going to get into the dev site. Okay, well, if they get into the dev site, what do we have to stop them getting to? And you build your defenses on the assumption that your devs have already been hacked. And then 99.9% okay. of the time you have more security than you need. But when inevitably there is a hack, you're all good. Yeah, that's that's something that's developed as a strategy since I retired. Yeah, it's Before the hip and happening thing, and the reason is the cloud. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, there is no edge. Oh, yeah, good point, good point. Yeah. It's, you know, when the edge becomes everything, what is the new edge? Well, now people are saying the new control plane is identity. That's the other buzzword of the day. You know, the new control plane is identity. Hmm. Um, but the three zero trust principles are assume, uh, basically the principle of least privilege, um, assume breach, and there is no edge. So when you build things that way, what you end up with is the kind of good systems like I've just described from these two companies. Huh. That's cool. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. I did run in and change my password on Uber just in case because, hey, when you got a password manager, it's really easy. Yeah, yeah exactly. What have you got to lose? Zero. Click, click, click. Boom, done. Didn't know what yeah. it was anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, you still don't. But it's a different something you don't know. <laughs> exactly. Um, in terms of action alerts, then, it has been Patch Tuesday. There were the usual plethora of bugs. One of note was a zero day in Windows. So, um, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. In Apple land, there have been security updates for all the major versions of macOS and iOS. And that includes for Big Sur and uh, older versions of Safari. And in mm. iOS land, obviously iOS 16 is getting all of the press because, hey, it's mm. shiny. And 
it really is kind of shiny. I have to say, it's been a long time since I've enjoyed an iOS update as much. I have it's never fun. spent, yeah, I've never spent so much time figuring out widgets. And I finally started to do focus modes because now that they changed all of my screens and all of my widgets, it's like, oh, this is useful. Um, but the reason I'm mentioning it, having just gotten distracted by it, is that it's really easy to get distracted by. <laughs> but everyone who's not who is using iPad OS or who doesn't feel like jumping in while it's all still version zero, um, if you're using iOS 15, you've got a really important security update to iOS 15. You should do that. And your phone will offer you to update iOS 15 or to upgrade to iOS 16. No pressure to upgrade, but definitely do one or the other as soon as possible. So I like what Apple did on that, but it was, since it was the first time this has ever happened, it confused a lot of people. So at the top, it showed you iOS 15.7, but if you didn't scroll down, you didn't see that iOS 16 was also available to you. So I've heard hmm. many, 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 many people talking about how annoying it was that they had to install iOS 15.7 before they were allowed to install iOS 16. So many people I know... Um, have and I won't call anybody out. Didn't notice that they were both there, and so they did twice. And that—that's the old. That's what Windows used to make you do, right? You do an yes. update, okay, reboot, do another update, reboot, do another update, and that's not what we're used to with iOS. So I, it wasn't, it wasn't highlighted as well as it could have been. I think, and and mostly because it was just so unusual. I think people didn't realize that you could jump straight to sixteen. But it was great. That if you weren't ready to go on 16 day one, because, I mean, that's crazy pants, right? Who would do that? Mm. Except everybody listening to this show. So go back to, you know, get but get the security update. So I think it was really good, but the timing made it a little problematic, I think, for some people. But only for the Uber nerds who would have who would have known to go looking, because what will what will happen over time is that at the moment iOS 16 is being offered for those who go looking, and in a few weeks' time, Apple will start to proactively push out notifications telling people that they should consider updating, and then in another few months after that, they'll start telling people they really should update. So iOS 16 is they haven't been pushing it yet because they'd like their servers not to fall over. Mm-hmm. And all of us early adopters, we are the beta testers, really. Mm-hmm. So, well, and they've come out with, uh, what is it? Are we up to 16.0.2 by now, I think dot it is? Two, I believe. So dot dot two, two is not a security two. fix. It is a functionality fix, mostly for iPhone 14 peeps. And actually, I think it's iPhone 14 Pro peeps, because it's yeah. a, it was a camera shake problem with the OIS, I believe. And I forget what the second thing was. Uh, a yeah, bug six, with the permissions for the clipboard. Yes. Yeah. Basically, oh, it's supposed to ask you once. Yeah. It's supposed to ask you once. It is 16.0.2. Yes, there is an 0.1 as well that fixes a bunch of stuff. But yeah, the iPhone 14 people... There was activation people, problem, so... Yeah. But you're right, it, it it's had a little extra updates and stuff going on and a couple of little hiccups, but by and large, man, I just I'm I loving really it. like it. Yeah. I'm, absolutely I'm not doing it. the widgets thing like you are, and I and I have not fallen for the uh, focus mode stuff yet. Because I can never figure out how to it's just an but, awful lot of overhead to figure out who I should have allowed to bother me when and how. I, I think you need to have distinctive hats for it to make sense. So you can now tie to the same focus mode a home screen, a bunch of widgets, a lock screen, and a bunch of permissions. And you can have them come on automatically. So at 9 o'clock in the morning, my home screen changes, and the only thing on my home screen is giant big widgets with my calendar and Teams and Outlook. 
and everything else goes away. And at five o'clock, when I finish you work, Teams and Outlook disappear. Widgets. You only get hmm? those three little widgets. You can't have anything giant. No, no, I mean on the home screen. Widgets. No, no, on the home screen. Oh, on the, the lock screen. screen. Oh, okay, the lock screen. Oh, oh, not the lock screen, the home screen. Okay. Yeah, so on the home screen, you can absolutely have giant big widgets. So most of my screen is taken up with a really great view where I can just glance at a really easy glance to see awareness. upcoming events. Yeah, and okay. the only thing there is Teams and Outlook. Hmm. That's it. So I'm completely in work brain. And then at five o'clock, it flips over and the home, the home screen changes. <laughs> the lock screen changes to the clownfish which I just adore. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm off duty now. And Teams and Outlook disappear completely. I have my personal home screen with my little Tesla in the top corner and weather so I can see how wet I'm going to get on the bike. And it, the phone just completely shifts focus. It, it, so it is amazing. I did not know you could change the home screens with the focus too. I knew the lock screens would do that. I think that might be new in iOS 16. Okay. So you can really pair, So you're, it's like you have two phones. Yeah, I think your problem is you like to focus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so focus modes are helpful with focus. If, Indeed. if we can go back to the uh, the post I did about uh, how all the notifications I have on, yeah. <laughs> I clearly am not plagued with that uh, that motivation. Yeah, that, that's fair. We do, we do need to have very different ways of approaching these things. What I do want is I start recording a podcast. I want do not disturb. You should That's be able what to I use. You should be able to oh, use shortcuts to trigger a focus mode. Ah, oh, shortcuts. Jeez, don't get me started. I hate shortcuts. I really want to like them. Okay. I've got well, like anyway. Two they they will get less boogie over time. <laughs> it can't get worse. I guess so. All right. Okay. So moving on to worthy warnings. Um, there has been a breach at U-Haul, including people's license details. Um. Mm. No payment information, so the biggest danger appears to be well-targeted phishing, which could then trick you into giving up your payment details. So if you are if you have used U-Haul, and I think as a foreigner looking in, I believe that's everyone in America who's ever moved house has gotten a <laughs> U-Haul and driven themselves across the country. Um, so just be suspicious, you know, if, yeah, if they know see. stuff. All that you have on your driver's license is your name, middle name, address, date of birth, whether you wear corrective lenses, Ooh. how much you weigh, well, how much you lied about what you weigh, how tall you are, <laughs> what color your eyes are. So mm. other than that, not much. That's a lot of PII floating around there. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So anyway, that's a thing. Um, also, if you're wondering why it's important to not tick the box that says allow messages to show on the lock screen... Uh, a whole bunch of people in London lost thousands of pounds of money while they were at the gym. And after a lot of investigation, they figured out how this serial theft was pulled off. People would break into the locker room while people were in the gym. They would have at their disposal people's wallet with card details and people's phones. And they would abuse the cards and when the authentication came through they would simply wait for the lock screen to show the message on the lock screen and if it did they would simply steal the money and if it didn't they would go to the next locker and try again how are they, so they're cutting the locks open on the lockers yeah most lockers are terribly like they're not fort knox right right but there's people in and out of the locker room well okay over a few months 
Thousands of pounds were stolen, and the reason they were stolen was because two-factor authentication codes were being shown on lock screens because people allow messages on their lock screen. I will tell you a much easier way to achieve this same crime. And I've always, I always thought about this when I used to go to the gym before the pandemic. What you do is you, my gym didn't have personal locks. It had a four digit code you had to dial in. What do you think the chances are that people use the same four digit code for their locker as they use for their debit card? Reasonably high. high. So all I have to do is watch one person put their purse away into a locker. Go over, open it up, because you, you can see the number you they dialed You can see the codes, right, and then take, just use the same code on the card. Take their wallet, just take their debit card. They may not even notice that. Go to an ATM and start taking money out. And you, yeah, only have, and the, you, you can do those one at a time, and if uh, by, by the third one, you're going to win. You, you very, very likely are. And the other thing that may well work is that same PIN number might unlock the phone. Exactly. So you could be in lots of winners. It's a really easy hack. I, every time I was in there, I was just like, oh, yeah, that's yeah, disturbing. I anyway, I the takeaway I hope people get is that, <laughs> particularly if you have an iOS device with biometrics, you can set it that the lock screen doesn't show the message, but once Face ID recognizes you, it does. So the mm-hmm. unlocked lock screen shows you your message, but the locked lock screen doesn't. So you get to you, it feels the same, but to a malicious person, not the same. So it is worth doing. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. I, I do like my lock screen to show my messages. In fact, my iPad's not doing it right now, and it's driving me nuts. But you have Face yes. ID, so you should be able to have it that when Face ID works, the messages go from obscured to shown. Yeah, I think th- I think that will work. Yeah. yeah, which I just think is magical because my phone has like a completely mystery message. I look at my phone and I see them change into the real message. It's like, and it's only because it's me. It's magic. <laughs> I like it. Um, another story that uh, made a lot of news is that if you enable the advanced spell check feature in either Google Chrome or Microsoft Edge, then it uses cloud services and AI sitting in the cloud to do better um, spell checking. A lot of web pages do not correctly mark up their HTML to actually, at a programming code level, mark password fields as password fields. Which means that these browsers will assume they should spell check those fields and they will send your password to the cloud to be spell checked. Not good. Now, there's a way to tell which ones are doing that, by the way. If your password manager doesn't autofill the password, it's probably not a password. It's probably not programmed correctly as password. That is a really good point, actually. And if Safari doesn't give it the appropriate little icon or whatever, but of course, you're not using Safari or the problem. Yeah, never mind. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, there's there's a lot of really shoddy web design. So this isn't really a catastrophe because the system receiving that information is a spell checker. It's not logging everything it does and mining the data later. It's a spell checker. So hypothetically, if someone hacked the back ends of these spell checkers, they could then start to maybe harvest some passwords. So this is more of a... This is a bad design and your password's going places it shouldn't. So it is at mm-hmm. risk of security vulnerabilities in places it shouldn't be. Basically, you've made the attack surface needlessly big. And the fix, unfortunately, is for websites not to suck or <laughs> not to enable the optional send everything I type to the cloud feature. Or passkeys. Or passkeys, frankly, yeah. Get Stop the typey typey out fields. of the bloody equation. Yeah. 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 Yeah, passwords need to go That's away. Passwords must die. Yeah. yeah. 
Hmm. Uh, so just to be clear, there is absolutely... But Safari doesn't do that? Only Chromium? And only if you enable this advanced spell check feature. Okay. Apple's hmm. general approach to things is do it on device if you can. Yeah. Which has advantages. Uh, okay, so... Notable security news then, and like I say, I put the story here because, hey, I wanted something here. So if you've ever wondered if it's really worth all the effort of actually blanking devices before you sell them secondhand, eh, ask Morgan Stanley about that. It's cost them millions of dollars because they didn't wipe devices before selling them on. So they were fined for having a whole bunch of PII of their customers on secondhand devices. Oopsie. And what were these secondhand devices? Do you know, I didn't even read that far into the story. It's like Morgan Stanley fined millions for selling devices full of customer PII. They didn't wipe the data. Okay, it looks like it's disk drives. Yeah, I mean, that... that Possibly. Like, uh, even places I work are smart enough to do that. We had, a, we had a person who had the highly specialized equipment of a chisel, a mallet, and a pair of goggles. And their job was to hit the hard drive until you could hear the disks shatter because they're all made of glass these days. So you go tunk and you hear a shattery noise and then you go onto the next disc. I will never forget on uh, Tech TV when Leo Laporte and, um, oh shoot, all of a sudden his name is escaping me. Uh, does a, Gibson? A, no, he's, he's one of the AVXL guys. Anyway, he um, uh, the two of them were doing just that to show you how you, you just pound a dent into the metal and they didn't mm. realize it was a ceramic disc. Ooh. And it shattered into about a billion pieces and scared the bejesus out of them. Oh, yeah. It makes quite the noise when you do it right. It's quite fun. I find it quite therapeutic, actually. I've, I have volunteered to help with the disc, disc decommissioning. Yeah, they um, would have been wearing uh, protective eyewear had they realized. Ah, they yes. That is, like not. I say, there, there were three pieces of specialist equipment, a hammer, a chisel, and goggles. Those goggles are important. <laughs> Uh, okay. I'm going to make a quick little, I, I know I've interrupted you a lot, but okay. this is a public service announcement. You know, I've talked before about a uh, an online service where you can get inexpensive eyeglasses, and it's called Zenny Optical. One of the things they sell is prescription um, uh, safety glasses. Safety oh, cool. Glasses. Yeah, Steve got a pair, and, you know, being of advanced years like we are, we've lost our close vision, and so he now has safety glasses that he can do real fine up-close up work, and, and they're real nice, too, so they, he likes wearing them, so he will put them on. That's a really good point, because I know you can get safety goggles that go over glasses, but then you have glasses with another shiny surface in front of it, and that just strikes me as a terrible idea, yeah. Yeah, no, these are these are really nice. They're and you know, and it's good glass too. It's not those crappy plastic ones you bought at Home Depot for three dollars out of a yeah. bin that was already scratched when you bought them. They they're they're really yeah. clear, and he oh, likes good. them. Well, that's great because then, like you say, if you like them, they'll get used. That's, it's like prescription yeah. sunglasses. Yes, because then you'll wear them and not destroy your eyes. More. Exactly. Zennyoptical.com. and no, they do Excellent. not pay for this as an ad. Yeah, it's even better. It's a recommendation. <laughs> Um, interesting insights then. Um, an, an article over in Intego caught my eye. I think it's always good to watch the trends. So there was a time when one of the most common trends was if you want to trick people into installing Trojans on their own computer, promise them a video of something that you think they'll want. Probably some celebrity with no clothes on, let's be honest. Oh, who was the tennis player? It all started with Kornikova. Her. Anna Kornikova. Right. Promise them a video, tell them their flash player is out of date, and offer to solve the problem. 
You never right. do have to show the video, you promise, by the way, because once you've solved the problem by giving them the flash installer, you've actually hacked their system, or rather they've hacked their own system for you. And that was a right. thing for years. Well, there's a new thing. Fake App Store pages. Send people a link oh. to something with all of the appropriate Google or Apple branding that looks like an app, but instead of it taking you to the actual App Store app, it has a convenient install now button that will let you download a .exe or a .pkg file or whatever and allow you to instantly infect your Windows or Mac machine with the software apparently from the App Store. All they did was just mock up a web page to look like the App Store. And so they're not uh, looking like uh, pages that have apps you can download. They're trying to look like the App Store. Yes, so basically the idea is that you'll be sent a link to this cool app that will let you do something you want, probably cryptocurrency these days. That seems to be the, we seem to have given up on celebrities with no clothes on and replaced it with get-rich-quick schemes. Or maybe we always had both. Probably always had both. But yeah, cryptocurrency is the big thing at the moment. So install this app and then you'll be able to get all this new crypto stuff you don't understand and we'll just throw some buzzwords at you. Uh, yeah. Now, this this screenshot in the article does not look like the Mac App Store at all. The The button is completely wrong, but it wouldn't be that hard to make it look exactly like the App Store. Right. And to you and I, we would not fall for this, but we are also not the people who are falling for the fake flash installers. Right. But you could make this look like the Mac App Store. You could make it where Allison might click it. Yeah, you could make it even better than it is. But Allison would immediately become suspicious when clicking the button doesn't open the App Store app, but instead yes. starts a download. But again, right, 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 we're not right. the target. Yeah. But I don't yeah. ever want to think of myself as as uh, not able to fall for this stuff. That is not what I'm... Correct. <laughs> we are absolutely able to. Um, I will never... I will. One of my... Happy is the wrong word, but a moment that is marked in my memory is a veteran, highly skilled sysadmin. Very skilled, you know, approaching the retirement age but very, very up-to-date on everything, shouting at the top of his lungs in the office, ah, SH1T. What happened? I just fell for a phishing scam. Now, the only thing his years of experience gave him was the insight two seconds after he clicked that he had clicked. But other than that, he was still fooled all the way through. Yeah. Now, it was a very quick fix because the expletive meant we were very quick to reset his password. Um, but that's how easy it is. It, and I, I think it, it's good that when people like us admit that, right? It's vital. To not pretend that we're too smart to have ever fallen for this. I've come very close. Very close. About two seconds the other side. <laughs> Um, and I, I tell pretty much every newbie who starts in the office about the day I deleted every machine from our Active Directory domain. Oh, yeah. We had backups. They work. I proved it. <laughs> but it wasn't my intention to prove the backup that way. Um, and yeah. I think it's really important to, to let people know that you will make mistakes. Just learn from them and uh, admit it quickly. Don't cover it up. Don't pretend you're a cat and, you know, I'll scrape some dirt over it and no one will find it for a while. No, no, no. If there's right, a poop. right. <laughs> be upfront about it anyway um, what else have we got oh we're on to palate cleansers um, I don't think you added any to the show notes but I have two so they're, all, they're both podcast recommendations actually so I think you like me were a big fan of For All Mankind or are right. a big fan of For All Mankind I am no spoilers and no spoilers 
But what I will say is that a storyline that I love, and it's been a really slow boiling storyline, has been how an American and a Russian have ended up with a relationship where they have accidentally become spies, but neither of them are actually traitors, and neither of them were in any way malicious, and yet they've ended up in a very compromised place, which is a fascinating story to see arguably a traitor portrayed in a positive light. Right. Well, it shows you how even a, a good person could slip into this. Exactly. Well, that storyline is not far-fetched. Something not different but not dissimilar actually happened in the Manhattan Project. And hmm. that the story of that scientist is season two of the excellent BBC podcast, The Bomb. So the first season was about the misgivings of the scientists who made the bomb as they were making the bomb. And the second season is about this scientist turned Russian agent. Who so this again, is the same as the story in For a Mankind. You're saying it's a similar story? It's the same thing of that fascinating, this person's technically a traitor. And yet they're not evil people. How did that happen? How do well-meaning people end up in that compromised situation? Right, right. It's a fascinating human story. And like I said, the, the, the Margot Alexi story in For All Mankind really caught me as just very well told. And so this I don't know that you said the name me. of the podcast, did you? Did you say it? Uh, the Bomb. So I was subscribed to The Bomb, but it took like a 12-year hiatus, right? And I think there's one year between season one and season two. Let's see. Maybe, maybe two years, but it, it not not ten not ten years. I can promise you, it was less it felt than like ten. forever. Yeah, compared to a weekly show. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was it was uh, two years. It was two September eleventh, twenty twenty, was the end of season one. So yeah. it's long been gone from my uh, uh, from my podcast feed, but I should add it back in. Yeah, good, like I say, series. It, season two is fully complete, so you can binge listen and then put it away for two more years. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I really enjoyed it um, and it's kind of funny because it's the same story about the invention of the bomb but completely different because you're looking at it from a different point of view so it's cool uh, and then the second one is one that Steve will adore as much as I do I love XKCD and I love physicist John Carroll not that biologist fellow Sean Carroll the physicist John Carroll he interviewed Randall Monroe, the creator of XKCD it's oh a long podcast episode. It is as wonderful as you would expect. So Sean Carroll by himself is fabulous. I don't listen to his physics stuff, but I Steve will often play for me the ones where he just people ask him questions. And mm. it's just a long rambling thing of him reading questions. And they're anything from like, are potatoes better than tomatoes to, <laughs> you know, uh, does God exist to, uh, you know, something about cosmology? They're they're all over the map, and they're it, it's a really, really interesting series. Oh, I definitely have to go listen to that. Actually, we should mention that Sean Carroll is a physicist who started off as a philosopher. In fact, with a right, theology. Right. Um, theology, I believe, is what he was actually studying. That's a very unusual mix. And that makes for very. a very, very well-rounded person who knows a lot about a lot and good at communicating, which is a yeah. very rare mix. I, yeah, I absolutely adore. I have gone, I have hoovered up all of the back episodes. Um, it took me about a year to hoover them up, but I did hoover them up and I enjoyed 
so much. Now, have you watched his lectures? He has a, I believe it's a 68 part YouTube lecture series. Steve watched no, all of them. I haven't, but it's, maybe it's, they should become my dinner time watching for a while. He loved it. It's, it's astrophysics without equations. Well, that's become a book. He's turned, he's turned that right, into the, but a... The book's going to do the math. There's going to be some true. math. The series, the video series has no math. He's going to do just a smidge of... Steve's very excited about the book, too. Yeah, because the book is going to be three books, because, hey, it's John Carroll. He doesn't do short. Mm -hmm. Um, But I believe the first book is either out or about to be out. And he did a preview of the book as a recent podcast episode that was absolutely fascinating, that completely hooked me. Um, Because I thought E equals MC squared was the most important equation in relativity. Nope, I was wrong. It's the Einstein equation. Who knew? Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, Steve explained that to me. That was very, very interesting. Yeah. And I have a degree in experimental cool. physics, by the way. <laughs> and I learned a lot from that episode. And I took a course on, on uh, relativity that I thought I did well on. Anyway. Nice, nice. Okay, um, for a short show with very few show notes, we've had a fun conversation, haven't we? <laughs> I, I definitely like this. This was great. I I would talk to, I, like I've always said, I'd let you read me the phone book. I always enjoy talking to you. And this is actionable information. Indeed. Well, as I always say, and hopefully it sinks in by repetition, until next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. It does look like, unless it happens right as I'm saying goodbye, it looks like I did not crash and burn doing the live show, but I like it a lot better when Steve's here for a lot of reasons. Anyway, did you know you can email me? You can email me dumb questions like Jill did at allison at podfeed.com. If you have a question or a suggestion, just send it on over. You can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. If you want to join in the friend of the conversation, you heard me mention our Slack community when I was talking about uh, Ryan Winkler. You can talk to him and all the other lovely new castaways at podfeed.com slash slack. Remember, everything's good starts with podfeed.com. You can support the show at podfeed.com slash Patreon. That would be really swell. Or if you'd like to do a one-time donation, those are always welcome at podfeed.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.